So we conclude uh, this day our uh, series, our Advent sermon series, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and we have been thinking about and wondering about how uh, God visits us in all the many manifestations of home throughout the Advent and Christmas season and certainly throughout our lives. So today we focus once again on that theme and we begin by taking a look at two lessons of the New Testament, the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and then also one verse from the book of Revelation. Hear the word of God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He is himself before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And then this verse from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus speaks and says, Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name, amen. Robert Boyd Munger was a Presbyterian minister back in the middle of last century, and he wrote a sermon once that ended up selling 10 million copies. And that was before Amazon. 10 million copies, I have a ways to go. The sermon's title was My Heart, Christ's Home. And the premise of the sermon, which got turned into a booklet for distribution, was of a man who had accepted the offer of Jesus that we just heard from the third chapter of Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I am standing at the door knocking, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. In the sermon, the man hears the knocking of Jesus on his door and welcomes Jesus into the home of his life. Soon, though, he learns that Jesus doesn't want to simply stand in the foyer of his home. He wants to be about the whole place. He would like to visit and dwell in all the rooms. First, Jesus enters the study, and he gazes at all the things that the man does with his mind, all the things that he reads and listens to and thinks about. The man finds himself a bit self-conscious over allowing Jesus into his mind. 
Next, it is into the dining room where Jesus is beginning to explore the man's appetites, his hungers, his thirsts, his lusts. Again, the man is a rather queasy over Jesus' knowledge of his unspoken appetites. Then there's the workroom where the man applies his skills to the labor of work. And then there is the rec room where the man indulges in all the hobbies and pastimes of his life. And then finally, there is where the, the closet where the man has hidden all the things he wishes no one to see, especially Jesus. As I said, the premise of the sermon is to imagine Jesus taking up full residence in the totality of our lives, inviting Jesus not only into the foyer of our lives, but into all the rooms, all the compartments of our souls, the totality of our lives. But the totality of our lives is a complicated thing, isn't it? The home of each of our hearts is likely broken up into many different chambers, as Reverend Munger suggests. We wear different hats, dwell in a variety of compartments, take on different persona. Some rooms we're happy to display <clears throat> for all to see, sort of like decorating for Christmas, all these wonderful rooms we would love for people to visit. In other rooms, we bolt and lock. Some rooms we're happy for guests to inspect, and others we would rather be caught dead in. And a great deal of our time is spent often trying to keep these rooms sometimes far apart from each other as far as we can, to separate this part of my life from that part of life, my life, to keep my, say, work life away from my church life, or to keep my pastimes away from my family time, to keep my lusts away from my thinking time, to, to keep these, these friends away from those friends to keep the hidden junk away from just about everybody. So far removed we wish to have these rooms from each other, we would just as soon not have a house at all with adjoining rooms, but, but maybe a big ranch with little one-room houses spread miles apart from each other so they don't have to connect or collide. Bubba Smith, the late great NFL defensive end for the Baltimore Colts after his retirement became famous to a new generation of people who, when he starred in the Miller Lite beer commercials that popularized the phrase, taste great, less filling. You may remember these commercials. Bubba Smith loved doing these commercials alongside of his fellow ex-NFL players working for Miller Lite. But then came the day when he was invited back to the Michigan State homecoming to be the Grand Marshal of the homecoming parade, a great honor. But he was in for a shock because instead of hearing the applause of the Michigan State faithful for whom he thought he was serving as a good citizen, true Spartan, what he heard instead from the crowd as they made their way down the main street there in East Lansing, the inebriated crowd, I would add, was chants from another room in his life. Tastes great, less filling. Tastes great, less filling. All the way down the parade route is all he heard. And then he began to realize that the rooms of his life were colliding. Said Smith, I, don't, I didn't like what I was seeing. When kids start to listen to what you say, you want to tell them something that's true. You have to stop compromising your principles. 
When Bubba Smith got home, he called the Miller Beer Company and told them he was through. It isn't easy when the conflicting rooms of your life adjoin. It's easier if we can think to keep them far apart sometimes, maybe miles apart. If I can just keep this part of my life from touching that part of my life, well, things will be just fine, but not really. We all remember the stories and movies that feature the boy with the two girlfriends or the girl with the two boyfriends, and she thinks she's got it figured out with one in one city and the other in another city, but then all three up end up in the same city, and the comedy and the tragedy is found in trying to keep one world, one room, apart from the other world, the other room. A lot of stress and anxiety and worry come when the cracks in our hearts begin to spread and the chambers drift apart and the person we thought we were ends up becoming the several people we're trying to be and you're not sure who you are anymore and you're pretty sure you're not what you were meant to be. Boris Pasternak, the author of Dr. Zhivago, said it this way, the great majority of us are required to live a life of constant systematic duplicity. Your health is bound to be affected if day after day you say the opposite of what you feel, if you grovel before what you dislike, if you rejoice at what brings you nothing but misfortune. Anne Lamott writes about a time in her life when her life was getting pulled in all sorts of conflicting and contradictory ways, and she was understanding less and less of who she was, writes Ms. Lamott, I was cracking up. I was like that cartoon where something gets hit and one crack appears, which spider webs outward until the whole pane or vase is cracked and hangs suspended for a moment before falling into a pile of powder on the floor. I had not yet heard, she continues, the Leonard Cohen song in which he sings, there are cracks, cracks in everything, but that's how the light gets in. I had the cracks, she concluded, but not the hope. Because there is this hope, isn't there, that the chambers of our heart might somehow fit together, that the person I am in one room would be the same person I am in the other room. That's what you see is what you get. No Steve A here, Steve B here, Steve C there, but Steve, Steve, Steve everywhere. What you see is what you get. The rooms come together. In Philadelphia, left over from the 18th century, they have what they call Trinity houses, or back there they call them Father, Son, and Holy Ghost houses, which are little three-room houses built with simply one room stacked on top of the other, on top of the other, each adjoined by a winding staircase. So to get to the room on the top, you have to start in the room on the bottom, pass through the second room to enter the third room. Down here in the southeast, we have our shotgun houses, one floor with three rooms back to back to back. So to get from the front to the back, you have to pass through all the rooms. And it's our hope, isn't it, that somehow the home of our hearts would find within it a floor plan where all the pieces come together and that peace is found in the layout of our lives. 
I suppose this is what the prophets and the apostles promised when they imagined and told about this Messiah coming to Bethlehem, the one born to Mary and Joseph, and the one supposedly born inside of us, the one who knocks on the door and asks if there's room, not just for one night, but for every night and every day. For Jesus is this great integrator, right? In him, the apostle says, in him all things hold together. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, by making peace by the blood of his cross. In him all things hold together. In him the rooms adjoin. In him, through him, we discover this great peace that passes all understanding. We are reconciled to each other because what he brings with him when he steps inside the door is his grace. And you know what grace does? Grace lets us open the doors. Grace lets us allow him to walk into our rooms without judgment and wonders what it might look like if we let this room connect to that room. What peace we might find if we stayed the same person from here to there. Grace says, you know what? You're a child of God. And you don't have to be one thing and then another. You don't have to be anything but one thing, which is a child of God, innkeeper for the gracious guest Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. And guess what? Have I got some feng shui for you. I've got a way to situate your heart and your soul such that the Spirit flows through you unimpeded. I've got a floor plan that will allow me into all the rooms. I've got a grace that can tell you that it's all right if I have a look even into the deep, dark closet of your life because there's nothing that you and I can't together come to terms with. Makes me think of Louis Zamperini, the real-life protagonist in Laura Hillenbrand's great book, Un Unbroken, a national hero who ran in the 1936 Olympics, signed up for World War II, was shot down in the South Pacific, left for dead, captured by the Japanese, tortured to within an inch of his life, survived the war finally, and then returned to a normal life. But what he learned was that he had too many rooms, too many dark chambers he wanted far apart from each other, too many closets where he buried his shame and trauma. PTSD had dissected his life. So he drank to forget, drank to keep the rooms apart. And then by grace attended a Billy Graham crusade and found the great integrator, the great reconciler, the great healer, and into every haunted room over time, he little by little allowed Jesus to fill every chamber, and he became the man he always hoped he'd become and spent the rest of his life on a forgiveness tour, forgiving first his captors and then begging others to extend the same grace that Christ extends to them. The Practice of the Presence of God is the title of the book put together by Brother Lawrence, a 17th century monk who made it his discipline to practice the presence of Christ wherever he was, in the study, in the kitchen, in the garden, 
in the village with this friend and with that friend. And what they said about Brother Lawrence is maybe what each of us would want said of us. They said he was the same everywhere he went. Because everywhere he went, he brought with him the grace and presence of Christ. Who am I, the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked in his great prison poem. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a woebegone weakling? Or is something within me even like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. And that's where we begin, right? We begin with being thine. We begin on this final Sunday of Advent with the one who knocks on the Bethlehem door and asks if there's an innkeeper around, someone who will open the door and say, come inside, for I am thine and you are mine. The one who enters gently every room with grace and with love and accepts us as we are, grace that yearns to make us one, and with grace joins all the rooms together, and with grace makes our hearts his home.